if you don't mind. Don't mistake me for Kenneth Copeland. This is still me. Um, or Frederick Price or those other people who roam around. Um, thank you, Julie. Where are you? Thank you. That's the way I wish I could play the piano, by the way. Oh, that was great. Beautiful. I hope you, uh, I hope you pray for us every day. You have that somewhere on your list? I hope you pray for the school and uh, for the leadership and the faculty. Um, whenever you want to do anything for God, guess what happens? The enemy moves in. And it seems as though we are always fighting the battle on one front or another. I'm not just giving you generalities. I'm giving you specifics. It's really a battle when you want to move ahead for the Lord. And we've seen the Lord demonstrate His faithfulness, but we need your prayers on a regular basis, daily. Really important so that you can see God glorify Himself in response to your prayers. Pray for us. I think God is doing tremendous things here. I know it. I, I, I see it day in and day out. And sometimes uh, it's little things, like uh, there's a guy I mentioned in the luncheon who keeps dropping off plants, and the other day he dropped a tree off. You saw it over there. And, and little things. He also dropped a pile of manure in front of my car, which I didn't quite understand. But anyway, I suppose they'll relocate that. I don't know. Maybe it's permanent. I don't know. But anyway, you know, there are little things like that that the Lord does that are, you know, pluses and positive things and wonderful things. Uh, I got a letter from a guy who uh, sent a check for the school, and he said, you know, I'm praying for you and this and that. And those little things. But sometimes the things that God brings along look at on the surface to be very difficult or very bad, very troublesome issues, but it's the Lord working to, to make the school what he wants it to be, and, and sometimes it's a real battle as Satan resists that. So I hope you, you remember to pray on a regular, daily basis for the ministry of the college as we move ahead. I want you to open your Bible this morning to the seventh chapter of Matthew, and I, I don't want to preach a sermon at you. I, I just want to talk from my heart out of the Gospel of Matthew. I have taught... Matthew now just finished, as some of you know, for the last five or six years. And um, one of the things that is a continual issue in the Gospel of Matthew is the teaching of our Lord on the subject of salvation. Now, I, I've, I've had the experience of going to a Christian college. I've had the experience of having unregenerate roommates. I went away to a Christian college, and um, I had a roommate who was a homosexual. I, did, I found out in a very, very bizarre way, which I'll not describe. I had the experience of seeing many, many young people that I went through school with in a Christian college wind up total disasters in their life. I mean total disasters. Alcoholic? I can think of a student body president who, as far as I know now, is dead, was an alcoholic. Um, messed up marriages into drugs. Immorality. I mean, I can go down and chronicle some of the people that I went to school with. It's unbelievable. I, I heard just last week in a letter that a former classmate wrote me about two of my classmates that I was involved with in, in a social way on the campus who are now dead, and the circumstances of their death were rather strange and bizarre. So we're not under any assumption that everybody uh, who comes to a college like this has necessarily got all the, all the pieces of their life together. But we have to start with one thing, and that is we have to start with a true knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? And if there's anything we want to be sure about, it's that. I remember one time a guy came to the college that I attended, and uh, he gave a, 
a sermon and asked people who didn't know the Lord to step out of their seats, and it was amazing. Uh, several hundred students came and wanted to acknowledge that there was some, some doubt in their mind as to the genuineness of their salvation. And the man who was in charge of the school stood up and said, All of you people that have gotten out of your seats, go back and sit down. We know better. That actually happened. Unbelievable. The man who had given the message began on the spot to weep, and it turned into a very traumatic event. You cannot go under any assumption. I mean, I've pastored a church for a long, long time, and I've seen people that I assumed knew the Lord come to Christ and really shock me because they had a fairly good ability to either be deceived or to deceive. And so I think it's important for us somewhere along the line as we get started to really come to grips with who we are. Every time you go to a communion table, in 1 Corinthians 11, you're instructed to examine yourself, right? Part of that self-examination is to find out where you are spiritually on the bottom line as to your own salvation. And then, of course, in 2 Corinthians 13:5, Paul says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. I mean, is Paul writing to the Corinthians for the second time after 29 chapters? He has to ask them to check and see whether they're really saved. It's a fair question. Look at Matthew 7. And let's see if we can start there and then track the teaching of our Lord. This is the gospel according to Jesus, by the way. He says at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, great sermon, the greatest sermon, I, I believe, in all the scripture on salvation. It is a sermon on salvation. And here is the invitation at the end of the sermon. Enter in at the narrow gate. In other words, he's, he's really destroyed the Judaistic system of salvation by works. He has leveled that system. And now he calls for people to respond to the truth and says, Enter in at the narrow gate. In contrast to that, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be who go in that way. Narrow is the gate, compressed is the way which leads to life, and what? How many? Few there be that find it. Now let's see what we're talking about. Jesus said there are two gates, a narrow gate and a wide gate. There are two ways, ways, a narrow way or a compressed way, a wide or broad way. Many go in the broad way, few go in the narrow way. Our Lord is contrasting two ways of salvation. This is the climax of his attack on Judaistic works righteousness. The Jews offered a broad gate and a broad way. In other words, you could get on that road just about with anything you wanted. You could carry all your baggage, your sinfulness, your self-righteousness, all the things in your life, a lack of repentance. I mean, you could just come on on your own terms. You just come on the broad way. It's easy to get on. You don't have to set anything aside. There's nothing involved except you step on the broad way. You get on the broad way, and there's all kinds of latitude. The problem is it leads to what? Destruction. But let me remind you something. It doesn't say hell when you get on. It says heaven. I mean, that's the whole point. I've heard many sermons preached where you hear people say the broad road is the road to hell. Well, it is the road to hell, but that's not how it's marked. Nobody is hawking tickets on the road to hell. They're hawking tickets on a road that says heaven but doesn't get there. I mean, that's the deceitfulness of the enemy who disguises himself as an angel of light. 
And so what you have here then is a kind of religion that says there's no price to pay. All you have to do is come on your own terms, get on, and there's lots of latitude, and there's lots of room for you to be whatever you want to be. And you find when you get to the end of that, it doesn't lead you where you thought you were going. And John Bunyan said the entrance to hell is from the portals of heaven. On the other hand, there is a narrow way, which means you come through a narrow way without the ability to carry things, like going through a turnstile with your baggage. You can't take anything through. You come through, as it were, naked onto a very narrow way. That is a very circumscribed way, a way of obedience, a way of truth, a way that puts demands on your life, and that way leads to life, to life everlasting. So everybody, really, who's confronted with the scheme of religions makes a choice. You either choose the narrow way, and you get on that narrow way, and it leads to life, or you choose the broad way, and you get on the broad way, and it leads, though it says it leads to life, to death. And in verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets. Which of those two roads would the false prophets like to have you on? The broad way. And there are many false prophets. And you want to be sure you carefully analyze them. Now, notice the word many. You ought to underline it in verse 13. Many go on the broad way. Now, let's follow the many, all right? Let's follow them over to verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone that affirms that they belong to me, that, that affirms a relationship with me. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that what? does the will of my Father. Now, put it this way. It's not the sayers that come in. It's the, it's the doers. It's not the sayers. It's the doers. The ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's the first word of verse 22? What's the first word? Many. So we pick up the many from verse 13. Here are the many who've been moving along the road. Many, the same many in verse 13 will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we, have we not prophesied in your name or preached? In your name cast out demons? In your name done many wonderful works? And of course, it may be that they thought they were doing these things and they weren't. It may be that they were doing them under the counterfeit power of Satan. But nonetheless, they give testimony to the fact that they've been serving the Lord. And we've done all of this. In verse 23, then will I confess to them, I never what? I don't have any relationship with you. I don't know who you are in terms of a spiritual relationship. You're not in my family. I don't recognize you. Go out of my presence, you workers of iniquity. Now, here is the most, I believe, the most frightening scene in all of Holy Scripture. A group of people who are under the illusion that they're going to gain entrance to heaven, and when they arrive at that moment, they are not allowed in, but are cast into eternal hell. They are religious people. They have been on a broad road, marked religion, filled with a whole lot of other religious people that said heaven, but there were no real constraints in their coming. That is, they could come any way they wanted. And when they got on, they could pretty well live any way they wanted. And they engaged themselves in activities, at least outwardly, that they identified as serving the Lord. But the truth of the matter is, they did not know him. And keep in mind, this is the many, and it is the few that are saved. I believe the churches of our country and the churches of the world, and probably my church and your church, are filled with people who think they're saved. And they're not. That's what our Lord is saying. So we ask this question then. Who's really saved? All right? 
Now let's see if Jesus gives us the answer. Verse 24. Therefore, whosoever hears, and we're right back to what he said in verse 21, not the sayers, but the doers, whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them, I'm going to liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. In other words, it had a solid foundation. And when the rain came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, it didn't fall because it was built on a rock. And this is the rock of true faith, but true faith is marked out by what? Obedience. So the first thing you want, you want to mark down in your mind or on your paper if you're keeping notes, and it's a good thing to do that so you can really think it through, the first mark of true conversion is the one who not only hears these sayings of mine, but what? Does them. What is characteristic then of true salvation? A life of what? Obedience. Of obedience. And Dr. Stead pointed that out from 1 John. Who is the one who belongs to me, but the one who keeps my commandments? 1 John 2, 5. And when the judgment comes, and the rain and the storm of verse 25 is the picture of judgment, this person survives. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, in other words, there's no pattern of obedience, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, you can't tell the difference between the two houses. Men will erect a, a religious house. They'll build a religious life. And you'll never know the difference. I can't tell the difference. That's why we're going to see later, Jesus said, when the wheat and the tares grow together, don't you try to tear them out because you can't tell the difference. It can be so deceiving. And so you have these two houses, and they look the same. The only difference is the foundation. And the characteristic of this person is hearing the sayings, building the religious house, but not doing those sayings. He then builds his house on sand. The rain descends, the floods come, the wind blows, beats on the house, and the house what? Falls. When judgment comes, this person isn't going to survive. So the first characteristic, then, of true salvation, of obedience to Christ is a pattern of obedience itself. Let's look at chapter 13 in Matthew. Chapter 13. Now, do you remember the parable of the soil? I won't go into detail for time's sake, but we remember that the, the Lord is giving this parable, which is a very familiar parable to the agrarian, agricultural-oriented people of his time, and they may have well been seated on a hillside where they could see people actually sowing seed in a field. And it says in verse 3 that a sower went forth to sow. And they would have a little basket over their shoulder, stick their hand in and grab a handful of seed and throw it in the, in the field that had been plowed and prepared. Now, as they walked along broadcasting, that's where broadcasting comes from, from throwing seed with a hand, throwing the seed, we'll notice that some of the seed fell by the wayside. Around every field was a beaten path, and it was the path through which people traversed the countryside. Jesus' disciples on one occasion were walking through the fields. You remember when they were uh, slandered, as it were, by the Pharisees who said they're eating grain with unwashed hands and so forth. But the point was they were moving through the fields. And whenever you traversed the land of Israel, in the valleys of Israel where grain was planted, you would walk through the fields on hard-beaten paths. And so as a sower was going down the furrow, he would throw some seed and some of it would bounce up on the adjacent hard-beaten path. And the birds would come along and devour them. And you can be sure that wherever there was a man sowing seed, there was a little covey of birds flying behind him, wanting to pick the seed up. And so whatever seed landed on the hard path, the birds would eat. And if you compare this with Luke's account, you will find that what the birds didn't get, the feet of the people walking trampled down. 
Some seed fell on rocky soil. And this is not stones on top of the ground or stones right under the ground, uh, or right in the ground, rather. But it is a rock bed underneath the ground, six to eight inches or a foot under the ground. There would be rock bed. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that. In fact, the rabbis used to say when God delivered the rocks to the world, he made an unequal distribution in the land of Palestine. And some places there's rock everywhere. And often, right under the soil, say six inches to a foot, there will be a rock bed. And so what happens is the seed falls into that ground, goes into the warmth of the ground, the sun and, uh, and the water being properly provided. The seed will decompose and it will begin to give its life forth. It'll shoot up and it'll shoot down and its roots will immediately hit rock bed. So all the energy coming in from the water and the soil and the sun will force the plant up. And it looks like it's an immediate success. In fact, it flourishes. The problem is its roots can't find any root in the ground and they can't penetrate to where the water is. And so it says they don't have enough earth, verse 5, and they spring up for a while. But because there's no depth of earth, the sun comes up, burns the plant, not being able to find water, it dies. And then some fell among weeds. That's the soil that's been plowed up properly, but there are roots of weeds that are still in the ground. And so the seed goes in, it gets all mixed up with the weeds, and everybody knows weeds grow better than anything else. And so as everything starts to grow, the weeds come up and choke out the life of the plant. The weed might put up a broad leaf, shading the plant from sunlight, and it dies. So you have that which fell on the hard soil, that which found in the, in the stone, fell in the stony ground, and that which fell in the weedy soil. And then there's other seed that fell into good ground and it brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. That's a simple story, isn't it? And you know, the guy in the field would be throwing the stuff out and some of his ground would be hard if he hit the path. Some of his ground might have rock under it that he didn't know. Some of his ground might have weeds in it and some of his ground would be good soil, right? And that's just the way it is when you sow. You do all you can, but there are times when you can't do anything more about the soil. Now, what does it mean? Let's go over to verse 19. And Jesus gives the explanation. And it is a very, very important one. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so we know the seed is the word of the kingdom, which is another way to speak of salvation, the word about how to get into the kingdom. When anyone hears the message of salvation and doesn't understand it or doesn't contemplate it, doesn't think it through, doesn't meditate on it, doesn't take it into mind, then comes along the wicked one and snatches it away, that which was sown in his heart. So we know now that the soil is the heart, right? The seed is the word of God or the gospel. The soil is the heart. So here is the coming of the gospel penetrating the heart, but the person doesn't think about it. They're indifferent. They're not interested in it at all. And along comes the enemy and snatches away what is planted. Satan can do that a lot of ways. Snatch it away. It just doesn't penetrate. And there are people like that. Have you had that experience? Have you had an experience of giving the gospel to someone who was just nothing but rock-hard soil, nothing penetrated, totally indifferent? Everybody has. You don't have to feel bad about that, by the way. If you're faithful to throw seed, you can't do anything about soil. Who alone plows soil? Who can plow soil? Spirit of God. John 16, he's the one who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Our job is not to plow soil so much. Our job is to throw what? Seed. Then some other fell in the rocky soil, and this is the person who hears the word. Wow, terrific. And with joy receives it. My life has changed. Transformation, excitement, and boom, they come out of the ground. Everybody says, well, that's for real. That's, that's for real, man. That's for real. But there's no root. There was no genuine repentance. 
There was no real commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so this person endures for a little time, but when philipsis comes or when uh, pressure comes, persecution comes, and there's a price to pay, and your neck is on the line, and there's the cost of discipleship, this person's offended and splits. I mean, it happens. I was on an airplane one time, sitting next to a great big hulking guy, turned out to be a tight end from the University of Kentucky, just graduated. He was telling me about all the, all the football experiences he had. Uh, we got to be pretty good friends. But the way he introduced the conversation was I was studying my Bible, and he leaned over to me. We were flying out of St. Louis to Los Angeles, and he said, Say, he said, I see you have a Bible there. I said, Right. He said, I don't want to bother you, but he said, Could you answer me a question? I said, Sure. He said, Do you know how I could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, I mean, your reaction to that is, you know, are you sure you don't need me to prove the Bible or something? Uh, don't we need to discuss evolution or, or I mean, uh, and I said, sure, sure, sure. I know. I mean, I know how. And so I gave him the gospel. So he prayed on the plane. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to work for a guy named Bud Jolly. Well, Bud was an elder in our church. I said, great. So I baptized the guy when he got there, started discipling him. Then he disappeared. I haven't seen him in about five years. It all looks so good. But there came a time when I was discipling him and I confronted him with the cost of discipleship and the fact that it was going to impact the way he lived. And he said, bye. I remember when Donna Summer said, uh, yes, I've been born again, but don't think it'll affect my lifestyle or my act. Now, if it doesn't affect your lifestyle or your act something wrong and so here you have this person who flourishes have you ever had anybody like that man they look that's got to be real but they disappear and the truth is they the, the the root never could penetrate because there wasn't a true plowing a true repentance deep in the heart and then the other one mentioned that was negative to the response of the gospel is in verse 22, the, the weedy soil. This is the person who hears the message. Terrific. I, it's great. Wonderful. I want that. And takes Christ ostensibly and on the surface and never lets go of the junk of the world. And so eventually all the garbage in the world and the deceitfulness of riches and preoccupation with the present age chokes the word. Now remember, the baptizing guy gave a tremendous testimony about being a pornographer in Hollywood. He said, I've made all the pornographic movies and all of this and that. And he went on to give his testimony, and he said, it's really wonderful to, to now have received Christ in my life, and I, I really want to live for him. And it was about two months later that I said to someone, I haven't seen him around. He said, no, he's back into pornography. There was an initial sort of response, and we've all seen people like this. They, they, there's an indication they want to come out of the world and live for Christ, but it takes very little time, it seems, and they're sucked right back in because they're choked out by the weeds that they never dealt with in their life. Now, you have to realize that when you and I are going around throwing seed, which is our job, don't worry about soil, just throw seed. And the more you throw, the more opportunity there's going to be for it to land in a good spot, right? So throw seed. Don't worry about soil. You say just any place and anywhere, we'll just throw seed. We just want a whole bunch of seed throwers throwing that stuff everywhere. You let God worry about the soil because some of it is going to land in soil that is good ground, verse 23. They hear it. They understand it. Here it comes. And they bear what? You got it. The first characteristic of a Christian is a person who is obedient to the teaching of Christ, right? He hears these sayings of mine and he what? Does them. The second mark of a true believer is he hears the word and the word produces in him or her what? 
fruit. What is fruit? I'll tell you what fruit is. Two kinds of fruit in the Bible. Two kinds of fruit. Attitude fruit and action fruit. Attitude fruit and action fruit. Attitude fruit is this. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, right? That's attitude. All of those are attitudes. And a life that is dominated by the power of Christ is going to be a life that is filled with the right kind of attitudes. You show me a person who has no love, no joy, no peace, and I don't care what they say, I'll, tell you, I'll show you a person not saved. There's no fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, that's attitude fruit. Now let me talk about action fruit. Action fruit is the activity of righteousness. It's doing what is right. It's the fruit of your lips, which is praise, Hebrews says. It's the fruit of your love, which is giving, Philippians 4. Fruit that abounds to your account, he calls it in speaking to the Philippians. They gave an offering to him. He says that's fruit. It's winning someone to Christ. You remember Paul speaking, uh, wants to come and have some fruit among you? That is to bring some people to Christ. And then there are the fruits of righteousness, which Paul talks about. Any good deed, any godly deed, any virtuous deed is a product of God in the life. Now, attitude fruit, then, is basic. And it's followed by action fruit. May I suggest to you that action fruit without attitude fruit is legalism. And the right flow in the Christian life is a spirit-filled life producing attitude fruit, which produces what? Action fruit. You show me a person who doesn't have any fruit, and I'll show you a person who doesn't have the life of God in it. So do a little inventory on your life. Ask yourself this. Is the direction, if not the perfection, is the direction of my life Toward obedience. Is that the deepest hunger of my heart? Do I want to hear the sayings of the Lord and obey them? Is the direction of my life, if not the perfection of my life, at least the direction of my life, a life of producing in my attitude and my action those things which are characteristically righteous? Those are the things that mark a true believer. Let's go over to verse 44 of chapter 13 and see something else. These two parables have been missed by the church, I think, and they're tremendously powerful. Dispensationalists, I think, have sort of hacked these up a little, and uh, there's a very simple explanation for them. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. You got that? People used to hide their treasure in a field. It's like pirates, you know, stash it somewhere and leave a map about how to get there. People used to do this. That's when Achan, you remember back in Joshua, when he stole everything, what did he do with it? Took everything out of Jericho he wasn't supposed to take and buried it where? In the ground in his tent. That was very typical. Safe place. You knew where it was. It was so many paces from a tree or it was under your tent or whatever. And that was typical. So there were, there were lots of treasures buried in the ground. And very often you might buy a field and, and four or five owners previously, back 50 or 100 years or 200 years, may have buried a treasure. But in your plowing a new field, you unearth a treasure. And that's what happens. This guy unearths a treasure. And he's so conscientious that he doesn't just take the treasure and run. He actually goes and buys the whole field just to get that. That's how much integrity he has. And he knows the man he's buying it from is not the man who owns it or the man wouldn't sell it to him. And so he buys it. But notice what happens. In order to buy it, he's so excited about what he's found, he sells everything he has to buy the field. Do you get that? Now let's look at the next parable, verse 45. The kingdom of heaven is also like a merchant man who sought fine pearls. People in those days used to consolidate their, their money in pearls or jewelry. And to find a, a pearl uh, of great price in which you could put your money was a good way to hold your treasure. 
And so men would be pearl merchants, and they would, of course, sell them to those who wanted to buy. So here's a guy seeking fine pearls, either to consolidate his own treasure or to sell to others. And in the process, he finds one pearl that is absolutely priceless. And he went and sold all that he had and what? Now, what is the common denominator in both of these? In each case, the man did what? Sold everything. Now, let me tell you what it is to be a Christian. It's a sellout. It's a full liquidation. It's an abandonment to the Lordship of Christ. I believe the treasure hidden in the field is the gospel, the saving truth of the kingdom. I believe the pearl of great price is the saving truth of the kingdom. It's the gospel. If you will, it's Christ himself. And in order for you to receive that, it is an exchange of all that I am for all that he is. It is that kind of abandonment. I remember I was speaking to a group of actors and actresses in Hollywood one time. There was this handsome guy who looked like Omar Sharif. He was some kind of a... Of, a, of an Indian uh, in nationality from India, handsome guy, movie actor, and he came up after I spoke and I presented Christ. He said, oh, he said, uh, I, I want uh, to receive Jesus Christ. I said, great. I mean, I said, uh, your background, of course, is, uh, is Muslim, yes. And uh, he said, I want to receive Jesus Christ. Well, you, know, you don't get very many opportunities to lead a Muslim to Christ, let's face it. So we prayed, and afterwards he opened his eyes and he said, Oh, he said, it's wonderful. Now I have Jesus and Muhammad. See? So I said, No, that doesn't work like that. You have to sell what? All. It is Jesus or Muhammad, not Jesus and Muhammad. That's right. It's Jesus or Muhammad. He wasn't ready for that. It's the people who sell all. The people who sell all. Um, let's look at chapter 18. And see what else. This is the Lord speaking. In Matthew 18, he says, all right, verse 3, he's got a little baby in his arms that he wants to use as an illustration. And uh, he's holding this little baby as a spiritual object lesson. And he says, uh, unless you be strepho, Turned around, converted. Um, unless you change the way you're going, go the other way. And the way they were going was prideful, self-indulgent, and so forth. They were arguing about who was the greatest. Unless you be turned around and become as little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's another thing about people in the kingdom. They're like what? And what are children like? Verse 4. Whosoever therefore shall what? Humble himself. I believe people who come to Christ are people who come in humility. Wish we had time to go back to the Beatitudes. Do you remember the Beatitude attitude? You know, when the Lord began to speak the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And He uses a word that doesn't mean just so poor you have to eke out on a living. He uses a word that means so poor you have to beg. Blessed are the beggars who have no resources and who know it and put out a hand that is empty and say, please. Like those who came to Jesus and said, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on us, thou son of David. It's the beggar. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the next one he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. In other words, those who know they don't have it. The deprived, the desperate, the meek the weak, the lowly, the child who knows he has nothing to offer and is totally dependent. Is that not the case of a child? You bring home a child, stick the child in the crib and say, hey, 
Everything he needs in the kitchen will be gone for the week. The child will die. Totally dependent. No ability to lay hands on any resource. Those who come like children. Who are the true Christians? Those who come like little children, totally dependent, without resource. Those who are willing to sell all and say, I don't understand the implications of your lordship. I don't, I'm sure I don't know what all that it means, but I just give you all my life because I want what you have that much. Those who not only hear the word of God, but have in their heart a strong desire to obey it. Those in whose life there is the product of fruit, righteous attitudes and righteous acts. Just do an inventory on your thinking pattern. Is your life marked by righteous attitudes? Is your life marked by righteous acts? Is that the direction of your life, if not the perfection? And obviously it isn't the perfection until we see Jesus, but is it the direction? Let's go to chapter 19. And this is just a ringing theme. It just goes on and on like this. And here is, here is the hottest evangelistic prospect in the whole Bible. I mean, if you don't get this guy saved, you really have flunked the evangelism class. This guy is so ripe. Verse 16. Here comes somebody to Christ. Now, we'll kind of draw from the Mark and Luke account just to fill in the story. And this man comes and says, Good master... What good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, that is a fair question. I've heard people say, oh, you see his problem. He said, what good things shall I do? Have you ever heard anybody say that about this? And he's saying, what I do? Oh, my dear friend, it's not what you do. Well, look, give the guy a break. It's a fair question. I mean, he's not emphasizing what good things shall I do. I mean, he's asking, if somebody came to you and said, what do I do to be a Christian? You don't say, oh, my... Don't say, I do. See, no, but people do that with this. Leave the guy alone. He asked a fair question. What does he know? What do I do to have eternal life? It's a fair question. Now, you have to know about this guy. He was young. He was rich. He was archon. He was a ruler. He must have been a ruler in a synagogue. That's the only kind of ruler I know about in the Jewish community. So he's the, he's the chairman of the board of the local synagogue. Spiritually, he's up there. He's got money, he's got prestige, he's got power, he's got influence, he's got everything, but what? Eternal life. You can have religion without eternal life. He knew it. He had a vacuum in his soul. Eternal life is not a, t a length of life, but there was a quality of life he knew he didn't have. It's a kind of life. He knew he didn't have the life of God in his soul. So he says, how do I get it? And he's asking Jesus, not because he particularly believed Jesus was God, but because he felt that this Jesus, this remarkable, miracle-working teacher, must have possessed what he wanted. I'm not sure he knew that Christ was the very source of that life, but he certainly thought Christ was at least an avenue to get to the source. And so the Lord says to him, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. In other words, what he's saying, why are you asking me the question when God's the only one who can give you the answer? And you know what God says, and he quotes him out of Deuteronomy, if you would enter into life, do what? What does he say? Keep the commandments. Is that the right answer? Is that the answer you're supposed to give in evangelism class? When somebody comes to you and says, what do I do to be saved? You say to them, why are you asking me? God's the one who gives that answer, and you know what he said, keep the commandments. You'd flunk the quiz if you said that. But that's the right answer. And so the young man says, which commandments? Fair question. And Jesus said, and he gave him a few to choose from. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. 
don't bear false witness and honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And picked out half of the, the second half of the Ten Commandments and threw in loving your neighbor as yourself. Start with those. And the young man said to him, I love this, all these things have I kept. What do I lack? Kind of sickening, isn't it? He didn't understand the implications. He maybe never murdered anybody, but what about in his heart hating someone? Isn't that the same? And maybe he never outwardly committed adultery or stole, and maybe he even had guarded himself against lying, but the truth of the matter was that he didn't keep that law in his heart. The point that you have to see here is Jesus wanted him to admit his what? His sin, but he wouldn't do it, would he? Why? I've done an inventory, and I can't even think of any of those that I haven't kept. What do I lack? I mean, the guy is looking for the first vacancy in the Trinity, right? He just wants to move in. He is there in his own mind. Now, what is the Lord trying to get him to do? Let me tell you something. The people who are Christians, the people who truly come to Christ, are people who admit their what? Their sin. They admit their sin. And follow this. Then Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, here's another wrong answer, according to most evangelism. Go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, is that the right answer? If somebody comes to you and says, What do I do to be a Christian? You say to them, Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Do you get saved by giving your money to the poor people? If you do, the poor people are lost until they give it back, and we're going to be standing there switching it back and forth and hope that the other guy has it when the Lord returns, right? You know, you don't get saved by giving your money away. It's a, it's a nice thing to meet the needs of the poor, but that's not the means of salvation. Well, what is he saying? The point is at the end of verse 21, come and follow me. And what Jesus is establishing here is let's find out who's in charge. Are you willing to do whatever I ask you to do? Let's find out. Sell everything, give it to the poor. If this guy was a truly penitent sinner, coming like a little child in utter dependence, realizing his spiritual bankruptcy, if he was meek in his own heart and desperately wanting Jesus Christ so that he would sell all that he had to receive Jesus Christ, he would have said, fine, I'll do anything you ask. Right? Anything. You see, the issue isn't giving your money to the poor. The issue is, are you willing to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? There are two things the Lord is after in this story of the rich young ruler. Number one, he wants you to admit your what? Sin. And number two, to confess his lordship. It's the issue. Well, he wouldn't do the first. Let's see if he'd do the second. When the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful. Because he had what? Lots of stuff. Two things he wouldn't do. He wouldn't admit his sin. And he wouldn't submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in his life. And you say, how can you lose a guy that's so... He comes running, if we compare the other passage, he comes running, he comes sliding on his knees, he comes to the right person, asks the right question, he wants eternal life. It's all set up and the Lord gets done with the guy and he goes away lost. Why? Because there are some things in salvation that are non-negotiable. I've heard people say in, in evangelism seminars, don't let anybody get off the track. Get them to pray the prayer first and worry about what it means later because once you get them to pray the prayer, they're in. Don't buy that for a minute. Jesus put up barriers. said, I'm not interested in talking to you about how to get eternal life until I, want it, until I know you're willing to admit your sin and affirm my lordship in your life, even if that means you have to give up everything. If you really saw it as a pearl of great price, you would, right? But see, men want to do it their way. And that's why Jesus says in verse 23, it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, that's a shocking statement because the Jews believed the more money you had, the more alms you could buy, the more money you could give away to the poor, the more sacrifices you could buy, the more offerings you could buy. In fact, the Talmud says, with alms, a man purchases his redemption. So they thought a rich Jew had a better shot at buying his way into the kingdom than a poor one. So when Jesus says it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, that was a shock. That was a real jolt. And then you ask the question, it's very difficult. How difficult is it? And what's the answer? It is easier for a what? For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how difficult is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Very difficult. And people will say, well, I know a rich man. He got saved, so it can't be impossible. So they, I've heard all kinds of explanations. I heard about a needle gate. Somebody said there was a little tiny gate in the wall of Jerusalem, and it was a tiny gate, and they called it the needle gate because it was little, and they used to jam camels through there. I mean, give me a break, folks. Fifty feet to either side is a big gate. What are they doing jamming a camel through a needle gate? The Jews aren't stupid. They're going to knock out a few stones, or they're going to go down to another gate. And nobody ever found a needle gate. Ridiculous. I heard someone even suggested if you reduced a camel to liquid, you could eye drop him through the eye of a needle. Or if you lined up his molecules, you could shoot him through the eye of a needle. No, this comes from a Persian statement about putting an elephant through the eye of a needle, but a camel was the largest animal in Palestine, so they adjusted to a camel. The point is, it is absolutely what? Impossible. And that's what they said. When his disciples heard it, they were amazed, and they said, well, then who can be saved? If it is impossible for a rich man, who can be? In other words, what the Lord is saying is this. It has been the assumption that a man, by his own means, in purchasing the elements of religion, could buy his way into the kingdom, and it isn't so. You never come into the kingdom with your own resources and on your own terms. And Jesus says it in verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is what? You want to know something? No man, no woman, no young person will ever be saved on his or her own terms. You don't purchase it with any commodity that you possess. But with men it is, impo- it is impossible. With God, what? All things are what? Possible. So, what do we learn here? Who are those who are truly saved? Those who acknowledge their sin and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and have nothing that they hold in themselves as a means of purchasing salvation. So we're back to the same idea. There's a bankruptcy of life that is essential in the matter of salvation. I want to share with you just one more because time doesn't permit that we should expand beyond that. Chapter 22, verse 11. And here is a marriage feast. The king calls the invited guests who in the parable refer to Israel the previously invited guests having been invited by the prophets to come to the wedding of the Messiah and they don't want to come so then the king says we'll go out in the highways and byways and bring anybody who will come and that of course is an allusion to the fact that when Israel in obstinate unbelief refused to respond to the messianic message the message went to the whole world right and so they're invited to come and so everybody comes piling in for the banquet and this is this is the, the scene at the at the glorious exaltation of the son of the king the son of god And here are all the guests. In verse 11, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man who didn't have on a wedding garment. 
Now, apparently there was a proper garment to wear. Some believe those garments were passed out at the palace when you came and you put on a garment that the king provided. That may be so. Others say that it's just that there's a proper attire and everybody in the culture knew what it was and one guy came in without the proper attire. In other words, he was a kingdom crasher. And he tried to crash the whole deal. And the Lord goes along meeting the guests and he says, friend, literally it isn't the word friend, he doesn't imply at all there's an intimacy there. Why did you come in here, or how did you come in here, not having a wedding garment? And the guy was what? Speechless. And the king said to the servants, tie him up, hand and foot, take him away, throw him into outer darkness, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to stop at that point. You can't crash the kingdom. You come in with a garment. You say, well, what? What is the garment? I'm just thinking of um, Isaiah. Wonderful passage, chapter 61. I think it's in verse 10, if my mind serves me. Yes, I will greatly rejoice. Listen to this. Terrific. Isaiah 61:10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Listen to this. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of, what is it? Righteousness. Is that characteristic of your life? What's the direction of your life? I mean, be honest. I mean, you don't want to go into outer darkness. You don't want to be in line and have the Lord say, throw that kingdom crasher out. There's no righteousness there. There's no submissiveness to my lordship. There's no acknowledging of sin. There's no meekness and there's no humility. There's no sense of poverty in spirit. I don't see righteous fruit. That person doesn't belong. See, the wonderful thing about all of this, people, is that all of this is available to us simply by faith, right? God is not asking us to perform an impossible task. He's asking us to admit we can't and accept His grace. But there has to be the admission. And when grace has done its work, there will be the result. What's the direction of your life? What are the deepest longings of your heart? Do you desire to come on the narrow way and live according to God's standards? Do you have a holy desire? Is obedience a priority for you? Do you want to hear the word and obey it? And sure, we get knocked down by sin, and sure, we fuss with our lust, but deep down inside, is there a longing to obey the Lord? And when there is sin in your life, do you hate it? Because your heart longing is for obedience. And do you look in your life and see some fruit? Maybe not as much as you'd like. Maybe it's a wrinkled grape here and there. 